Thank you so much, choir. How special to be ministered to you as we enter into this wonderful Advent season together. Uh, recently, the Lord has allowed me to cross paths with a skeptic. And he is a friendly skeptic. Now, if you're going to deal with a skeptic, it's uh, very helpful if he's a friendly skeptic. And so this has given me uh, much opportunity to witness to this man. Uh, one day he told me that he and his wife were discussing miracles. And I said to him, uh, I'm a Christian because of miracles. He said, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, uh, Jesus Christ came to be God, claimed to be God, and uh, he predicted his own death and that he would rise again from the dead three days later. He is the only person in history to make those claims and then to accomplish them. And so I said to my skeptic friend, that's why I am a Christian. You know what he said to me? He said, is it that simple for you? That was his response. And I said, yeah, it is that simple for me. Because uh, only God could do what Jesus did. And therefore, Jesus must be sent from God, and he is the one that we ought to believe in and that we ought to follow. Uh, do you know there's another reason why I am a Christian and why I trust the Bible? And that's because of predictive prophecy. Hundreds and even thousands of years before Jesus Christ came, the Old Testament predicted everything about his life in complete detail. And he fulfilled every single prophecy that was given and he will fulfill every single prophecy that is yet to come. And therefore, because of that, God alone could accomplish that. And that's why I am a Christian. Now this Advent season, what I want to do is I want to begin a, a three-week series on the Messianic Psalms. And I want to bring uh, three messages entitled, What Child Is This Christ Foretold in the Psalms? And what we're going to see very, very wonderfully is the Christmas story in the Psalms. Messianic Psalms are those Psalms that predict something about the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And today we begin with the grandest of them all, Psalm 110. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me into the middle of your Old Testament to Psalms. And I want you to turn to Psalm 110. And let's look this morning as we begin just at this first line for just a moment. You will notice that this is a psalm of David. It is written a thousand years before Christ came. And notice how David opens in verse 1 of Psalm 110. He says, The Lord says to my Lord. Now the word says there is a very, very interesting Hebrew word. It is the word Nahum and is referring to the declaration of a prophet. It is talking about a revelation. 
And so what David did in this psalm is he took his role as an Old Testament prophet. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he announced what the Father said to the Messiah. As we open this psalm, we are being led into a conversation that is taking place in heaven. Would you talk about being on holy ground? Talk about being on holy ground. Now, nothing in this psalm that we are going to see this morning could be fulfilled by any other person than the Messiah. That's why this psalm is called a purely prophetic psalm. It is extremely rare in the Old Testament. In fact, this is quoted more than any other psalm in the entire Old Testament. Verse 1 alone is quoted 25 times in the New Testament. And everything fits one person and one person alone, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's what I want us to do today. I want us to look at these prophecies in Psalm 110. And then I want to go one by one to see how they are fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. Could I say to you this morning, this is an excellent place to go in your Bible to help somebody who is struggling to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Bible is indeed the Word of God. Because here we are a thousand years before Christ and God is predicting His entire life and His entire ministry. This validates the whole Bible and it validates the person of Christ. I would encourage you today just to take those notes in your Bible. This is the type of little tool to have in your Bible on a regular basis to help people who need to have confidence in the Scriptures and confidence in the Lord Jesus. Let's begin, shall we? First of all, we are told in this psalm that Jesus pre-existed as God. Notice the opening verse. We hear this conversation in heaven. And David tells us, The Lord says to my Lord. Now there are two different Hebrew words used for Lord in verse 1. Uh, the first one is Yahweh, and in this context it refers to God, the Father. Uh, the second word, Lord, the Lord says to my Lord, is the Hebrew word Adon. And that word means master or ruler. Uh, many times in our Bibles, that word is also used for Yahweh himself. Uh, sometime go to Psalm 69.6, and you will find Yahweh called Adon. So follow along here. Here we have one Lord speaking to another Lord. Now this is a messianic song. David is describing a future descendant of his who would rule on his throne, the Messiah. And the only way this descendant could be his superior, his master, my Lord, is if he is God. I had this conversation with uh, some of my family members this past week. 
I said to them, if I were a king, would I call my descendants Lord? And the answer is no. And we say, well, why not? Well, as their progenitor, I am also a king. So they would not be greater than me. So I might call them prince or princess, but I would never call them my Lord. So clearly here, Jesus Christ pre-existed his birth as God himself, the second person of the triune God. Now take your Bibles and turn with me, keeping your finger here, to Mark chapter 12. And I want you to notice a question that Jesus posed to the Pharisees and Jews in the temple at the end of his life as he was teaching. And I want you to notice this very important question from Psalm 110. Look with me at verses 35 through 37 and notice what Jesus says. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then is he, and he be his son? And this large crowd says, Listen to him with delight. Now, when Jesus posed this question, he knew that all of the Pharisees and the Jews regarded Psalm 110 to be a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And notice what Jesus says. If David called him Lord God, then he must be more than his son. Now, how brilliant is this? Jesus knew the Pharisees had read this psalm thousands of times. They had never seen this. They knew that Jesus was exactly right. And you know what Matthew says about them? They gave him no answer. They gave him no answer. Say, I want to say to you this morning, we either accept Jesus as our Lord or we have nothing to say, right, this morning? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Notice second in this psalm. Secondly, we are told that he became incarnate as the God-man. Turn back with me again to Psalm 110. And let's notice a fascinating, fascinating conversation that teaches us that the one who preexisted had to become incarnate. I want you to now notice with me the rest of verses 1 and 2. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Now it is clear here that David is describing 
a physical descendant of his who would rule on his throne. He says in verse 2 that what God would do was he would extend this one's mighty scepter from Zion and he says he will rule from that place on his throne. Now you know that Zion was the hill where David founded the capital of Jerusalem upon, uh, uh, the capital of Israel upon Jerusalem. Uh, Sometimes Zion became uh, a synonym for the whole nation of Israel itself. Uh, You know today, Zionism means the right of Israel to have a homeland in Palestine. So here when he says that this one is going to rule from Zion, the meaning is the Messiah would be in the line of David. In order to do that, he had to be human. Now keep your finger here again and and turn back with me this time to Mark chapter 14. And I want you to notice how Jesus once again alludes to this psalm this time emphasizing his humanity that he became incarnate. Uh, Let's go to Psalm 14 and I want you to look at at verse 62 as Jesus is now at his trial. And listen to the question that is asked of him in verse 61. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus says, I am. And now alluding to Psalm 110, And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Do you know Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title for himself? It is found over 80 times in the gospel. It was a messianic title stressing the humanity of Christ. Son of man means he would be God's ideal man. Now can you follow this strange chronology with me in Psalm 110? In the flesh, David would precede Messiah. But in the Spirit, Messiah would precede David. Can I ask you this morning, how in the world does that happen? How in the world in the flesh can David precede Messiah, but in the Spirit, Messiah precede David? There's only one way that can happen. That has to be through the Incarnation. What does John say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But then we have to travel down a few more verses until we get to John 1.14, and he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. The only way this psalm could be fulfilled is through the incarnation of one who would be the God-man. Let's look thirdly at the third line in this prophecy that shares with us another great detail about Jesus. His resurrection and His ascension. Looking again at Psalm 110, it says that the Lord said to him, You are going to sit at my right hand. Now the right hand of God is the highest place in the universe. This, then, is a royal image. 
And so what God was saying is that Jesus, the coming Messiah, would be enthroned as God's king and as God's judge. Look at this image this morning. This is very much the imagery that is being described right here. Messiah would be enthroned as a world ruler. Now, follow along with me here this morning. For this to happen, Jesus would have to be raised from the dead, and he would have to ascend back to heaven. Uh, can I just pause here for a moment and say how wonderfully integrated and perfect the scriptures are? Psalm 22 tells us the Messiah would die. Psalm 16 says that his body would not see decay. Therefore, it would have to rise from the dead. Now Psalm 110 makes it clear that this Messiah would be enthroned, meaning he must rise from the dead and ascend back into heaven. Do you know, after the resurrection... The apostles who were eyewitnesses of all of this put this together and they said, Jesus must be the one. Keep your finger here again and go with me to Acts chapter 2. And notice how a light went on in their minds as they saw the resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of Christ and realized he had to be the one. Follow Peter's sermon with me in Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 29. Listen to what Peter says. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay, as Psalm 16 predicted would happen. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And all God's people here this morning said, Amen. Amen. Just as was predicted in Psalm 110, His resurrection and ascension. Well, what's next in the career of our Lord? Well, let's go back to Psalm 110, and let's notice that secondly, what we see, thirdly, what we see, fourthly, what we see, are you keeping up with me? We see he would have an eternal priesthood. Now, I don't know about you, but as I'm reading in Psalm 110, 
about this mighty king who would conquer the grave and take his place at the highest place. I don't know about you. I'm ready for some action, aren't you? Man, I want to see him ruling and I want to see him reigning. Instead, we are told there will be a delay. Did you see that in verse 1? Messiah will stay in heaven. The Lord says to him, Sit at my right hand, verse 1, until I make. Why is there this delay? What is Jesus doing now? Look down at verse 4 for the answer. Psalm 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn, and He will not change His mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What is Jesus doing now? Well, He is ministering as a great high priest. Now, the most important thing to know about Melchizedek, who appears once on the pages of Scripture in Genesis 14, and then disappears and is never heard from again, is that he was the only man in the Old Testament who was both a king and priest. He was king and priest of a little town called Salem that later became Jerusalem on the hill of Zion. And Melchizedek became a perfect example of the kind of Messiah that Jesus would be because Jesus would not only be a king, he would be a priest. And right now, we are being told in this passage that Jesus waits before he comes back as king so that he can minister as priest. Aren't you grateful for that today? Oh, how grateful I am. You see, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. I need someone who will die for me, rise again for me, and be a mediator between me, a sinner, and a holy God. And Messiah would be that priest. Now keep your finger here again, and turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 5, And notice how here the Apostle tells us that Jesus is the one who fulfilled Psalm 110, verse 4. Look with me, if you would, at verses 5 through 10 in Hebrews chapter 5. And notice these wonderful, fulfilling words of this great prophecy. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, Psalm 2, you are my son, today I become your father. And he says in another place, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. He was heard in the resurrection. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest just like Melchizedek 
in Genesis chapter 14. What a wonderful thing. Jesus fulfills this great high priesthood. A few years ago, there was a world religious conference held in Chicago. All the great religions of the world set up booths. And as you went through this great conference, uh, you could visit at these tables and find out about these world religions. My old professor, Erwin Lutzer, who now for 30 years has been the pastor of Moody Church, decided he would go to this world religions conference, go around from booth to booth, and ask one question. Can the founder of your religion forgive your sins? What a question. So he went to the Buddhist table. Can Buddha forgive your sins? Oh, no, no. Uh, Buddha can take you on the eightfold path, but he can't forgive your sins. He went to the Muslim table and he said, Can Muhammad forgive your sins? Oh, no, no, no. Muhammad is the great prophet of Allah, but only Allah can forgive your sins, not Muhammad. And then he went to the Hindu table. And he said, can Vishnu forgive your sins? Oh, no, no, Vishnu can't forgive your sins. Uh, maybe he could help you escape this life through reincarnation and, and move off into nirvana, but he can't forgive your sins. He went to every single booth in every single world religion not one of them had a founder who could forgive his sins. You know what Urban Lutzer said? He said, my problem is I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Now look at Hebrews 14, 14 through 16 and look what Jesus as this great high priest can do. Look at what he can do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And all God's people said, I'm the weakest one of all. Oh, how I need that. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's go to Jesus' table and say, can the founder of your religion forgive your sins? And there is a resounding yes, yes. He is our great great high priest. How wonderful this is. Well, what's next? What's next? Well, as we go back to Psalm 110, we discover that there are two things that are next. There is the second coming, and there is the battle of Armageddon. And you say, is this predicted in Psalm 1-2 as well? Yes. Look at verse 1. Jesus ministers as our high priest until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Then God says to him, 
He will send him to rule and reign at his second coming. Look at verse 2. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Did you notice this? Verse 1, Jesus goes from earth to heaven. This is a command. Come, sit at my right hand. But now verse 2, Jesus goes from heaven to earth. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Do you know in the picture that I put up of the throne, uh, with Jesus being told, you will sit at the right hand of uh, Almighty God the Father, one item that was missing was the scepter. And so I've got to bring this picture back up this morning, and I've got to show you now the scepter on the throne where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Here in verse 2, it is called a mighty scepter. In Psalm 2, verse 9, it is called an iron scepter. The scepter was symbolic of a ruler's political power. So that what this is telling us is that Jesus will come with total political power. In fact, look at verses 3 and verses 5 and 6 in Psalm 110. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. By the way, I don't have time to get into that, but if you're a Christian, that's you and me. We will be coming with Jesus as the armies of heaven when he returns. I'd love to develop this image right here, but I can't right now. Let's look on further at verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead, and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Jesus will come with total political power. Now I want you to notice something very, very fascinating. Verse 5 says, when he comes, he is going to crush kings. If you could look a little closer at the original Hebrew text of the Old Testament, you would discover that the word is head and the word is in the singular. So that it is saying about the coming Messiah, he is going to crush a head. Can I ask you this morning, does that sound familiar to you? Does it? Do you remember where the scripture talks about a head being crushed? Yeah. This is the very first prophecy ever recorded of the coming Messiah in Genesis 3.15. And look what Genesis 3.15 says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will, read it with me, crush your head and you, Satan, at the cross will strike his heel. 
Wow. Satan is behind all the evil that is in the world. And he works in those who belong to him. Now Psalm 110 describes Jesus, who in his second coming at the battle of Armageddon will crush Satan's head and he will deal a final blow in this world before the final battle at the end of his thousand-year kingdom to sin, evil, and death. Now, Revelation 19:11 to 21 describes both his second coming and the great battle of Armageddon. And that chapter, if you will turn there with me, keeping your finger in Psalm 110, is based upon the prophecy of Psalm 110. So let's go back to Revelation 19 and let's read these familiar words. Only now, recognizing they are fulfilling what was prophesied thousands of years earlier in Psalm 110. That the Messiah would come in His second coming, and He would defeat Satan and all evil at the battle of Armageddon. Follow along as I read Revelation 19, starting at verse 11. I saw heaven open, standing there before me on a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. The armies of heaven, described in Psalm 110, verse 3, that we didn't have time to go into, they were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, which is to strike down the nations. And now, notice this: he will rule them with an iron scepter, a mighty scepter. As Psalm one ten one says, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. Who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, "Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great." Then I saw the beast, whose power has been received from Satan, the Antichrist. And the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image during the seven-year tribulation period. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Exactly as Psalm two predicts. 
I don't usually expect to get great pearls of wisdom from Donald Trump. But this week I was watching him interviewed on the news. This is what this billionaire said who has it completely made. He said, it really is an evil world. He said, wherever you look today, whether it's in America, the Middle East, Africa, Europe, the whole world is engulfed in violence. And a billionaire tycoon who has it made said, it really is an evil world. Kind of despairing, isn't it? Unless you know Jesus, right? Unless you know Jesus. Because He will come to deal with all evil and end all that violence. And how complete will be His victory? Well, the last detail in this psalm tells us that he will have a total victory. Let me read for you the last verse of this psalm. It says, He will drink from a brook beside the way. An image of a warrior who is speedily conquering, stops for just a moment to reach down, get a refreshing drink, and then continue on to his victory. And Psalm 110 concludes... Therefore, he will lift up his head in total victory. And the Apostle Paul, looking forward to that great day, has for us another quotation from this psalm, this time in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, turn there with me to verse 25, and let me read for you again one more quotation about the total victory that is coming for all who belong to Christ. Listen to what he says in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 15. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Psalm 110.1 And now notice what this will be. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And all God's people said, For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, the one who said, Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He's not going to be submitted. He's the one who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that one day God may be all in all. Is that not a hallelujah at Christmas time? Yes, yes. Total victory is coming. You know, as I think about all of this this morning, I have to draw some conclusions. You have to draw some conclusions. Look at this. One thousand years before Christ came, seven precise details laying out his whole history from his pre-existence all the way to his total victory. 
And as you look at this and see the beauty of it, the magnificence of it, you must draw some conclusions. Let me draw three of them this morning. Number one, Jesus is who He said He is. Amen this morning? He is who He said He is. He is the only one who fits all of the data. This is not an accident. It is not an accident. And as I would say to my skeptic friend, Jesus is who He says He is. Secondly, the Bible is a divinely authored book. The Bible must be a divinely authored book. Only a powerful God could predict all of this and fulfill it precisely. And by the way, as I look at this, I say, if Jesus did the first four, He will do the next three. What He did in His first coming fulfilled prophecy exactly, and therefore in His second coming, He will fulfill the rest. The Bible is a divinely authored book. And then a third conclusion. The only thing that makes sense in an evil world, engulfed by violence as our world is, is trusting Jesus as Savior and following Him as Lord. It is the only thing that makes sense. Aren't you glad you're a Christian today? Aren't you glad that you participate in this and will participate in this? This is the true meaning of Christmas. Let's bow our heads for just a moment and let's thank God for laying it before us. Listen, as I prepare to lead us in prayer in a moment, we will sit around the communion table. It's possible that you have come here today during this Advent season and you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior. I really think if you don't participate in church during the Christmas season, you just are so confused with the world's message. There's no way that you can just ferret it all out and get the real thing. It's only when we come into the presence of God and open His Holy Word and see what the true Christmas story is about that we're brought face to face with the living Christ. And today, if you're not sure where you stand, what a wonderful thing it would be. Just a, a little under three weeks before Christmas Day that you would come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You could say something like this from your heart to God. Oh God, I, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I deserve the judgment that is coming. But Lord, here I am, and, and I've heard the greatest story ever told, and I have seen how it was conceived in the heart and mind of God thousands of years before Jesus ever came. And Lord, as a sinner, standing under judgment, I don't want to be caught and left behind. Rather, I want to belong to the Savior so that when He comes, I will be part of the armies of heaven, the saints of God that return with Him. Lord, today, 
I'm repenting. I'm turning from my own selfish way. And I'm turning to you. I believe, Lord Jesus, that you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead. And right now, by faith, I trust you. I surrender to you. Come in my heart and, and be my Savior. Come into my life and be my Lord. It is the only thing in this evil world that makes sense. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Give me the eternal life that you rose again that I might have. This very day, transfer me from the kingdom of Satan and darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And then say, Lord Jesus, because you have promised that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now with Christ as my Lord and Savior, I will follow you in obedience all the days of my life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me. O oh God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, bring sinners to salvation today. Cause the saints to rejoice in what it is that they have. And though we may be, uh, of all people, sometimes lowly, sometimes despised, sometimes persecuted and forsaken, may we find great joy that the greatest one who has overcome and will overcome is our Lord and Savior, our great High Priest, who knows our weaknesses, who sympathizes with us, who forgives our sins, who beckons us by His gracious hand to follow Him till He comes again. Cause our hearts to overflow with gratefulness and thanksgiving. And may we be your witnesses in this dark world. For Jesus' sake we pray. And all God's people said together, Amen.